Again to the good trash genre cast. For people- Hi. Hi. Hello. Where people gather around the table and we talk about the films. How are you? I'm good, buddy. That you'll never discuss in a Philip Size course. Uh, this I- week- I'm also well now that anybody asks. <laughs> this it's week- true. We would <laughs> You guys are the worst. This week's film is a uh, Patreon pick by uh, Keith and Smith, and uh, we are going to be talking about Fallen Angels, directed by Wong Kar Wai, and very, very excited to do that. Let's introduce the voices and then introduce a little something special. To my left, sir, who are you? I am Arthur Gordon, and is your name Blondie, too? It is Blondie. Huh. Everyone calls me Blondie. Thank That's you very true. much. Uh, to the further left, who are you? My name is Dalton Stewart, and I'm a lazy person. I like others to arrange things for me, and that's why I need co-hosts. Very good. My name is Dustin Sells, and in the same way, I like it when others make decisions for me. So we were in the same Yeah, we're, we're simpatico there, my guy. Yeah, and so we are um, doing some good stuff here today, but we have a special guest host here in the studio with us today. We have Mr. – well, go ahead and introduce yourself. Uh, hey, it's me, Keith and Smith, the guy who paid money to make these guys watch – a movie I like, and uh, yeah, Keithan's here in studio, and that was a surprise to my uh, two illustrious co-hosts. But doesn't clear anything by us. You no, know, nope. Because wait, there's more. Okay, Keithan, um, do you have a brown bag with you? I have a brown bag, and uh, he's going to give us something in that brown. Is this bag the brown bag special right now? Uh, I, 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 you can't is. give us drugs on air, Keith, and that's it is. Uh, let's do it individually. Let's do one at a time. Uh-oh. As to what's going on, you Uh-oh. do me last. What, what is happening? It's US. not the first time that's happened, is it? All right. So, oh my something God. wrapped in tissue paper. Uh, Mary Cinemas. Do I? Okay. Yeah, do it. We have gift. Yeah, I'll, I'll do a commentary. As Arthur's, we're we're doing an audio unboxing. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, that's really good. That's very <laughs> pleasing. All right. What do we got here? I mean, this is clearly a film. I, I know. I know the. Yeah. What do we got? What do we got? What do we got? Okay. 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 Oh no. Oh, Etu Mama Tombi in the Criterion Edition. Oh my dear, you're such a sweetheart. One of Arthur's very favorite movies that we've discussed so far this year. Oh it's my a, god! It's a good one. So excited! That's a good one. It is a very good movie. That's. I thought about. I'm, I'm happy you made movie. me watch it. I thought about this movie while we watched. Fallen Angels. Yes. Yeah, me too. I yeah, think a couple of times. A yeah. yeah, a lot of the voiceover stuff. I think for for sure, absolutely. All right. All right. Moving All right. on. Number next. Oh, uh, you're you're so sweet. Okay, so um, I are you going to? Yeah, we're going to. Yeah. So in so blue tissue paper. Without uh, running his mouth, Dalton has opened the gift. I can't believe this. Oh, 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 oh. oh, baby, Michael Mann's Thief. My only, the only Michael Mann film I love. Oh. Keith knows it's better than we know ourselves. Oh, which Keith is the scariest thing about it. That's so good. There's, yeah, there's too many recorded hours of our taste <laughs> yeah. in the internet. But I, I can't remember which episode this year, like you. I don't know. You talked about that film. For I remember like it came up. I don't remember. Yeah, I've, I've only seen it the one time actually. But I, the, as soon as I watched it, because I kept hearing it come up in reference when Drive came out, and it was like, you need to see Thief if you like Drive. And it, yeah, man, I, I, I 
dig this movie oh, a lot. I mean, so we got the same fun. There's def- <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, Drive yeah. is heavily influenced by this movie. Most definitely. Yeah. That Keep made it... me wild at heart a little bit. You're, you are so sweet. All right. Well, do, you, do we have something for Dustin? We do. Uh, we do. Uh, never last. Now, I'm not surprised, but we're we're going to do the same way. Now, mine's in green, so we had, we had pink, yellow, and green. It's like a baby shower that yeah. we're experiencing. There's no much. pink. No, it's blue. blue. Blue, yellow, and, and green. green. Why did I say pink? So, uh, I, I, you, you, you're trying you, to fit us into gender roles. Yeah. Don't, I think don't do I've ra- unwrapped many pink things recently <laughs> as there's a little girl coming into my house. That's right. Uh, it's Dustin's really going to be a, a dad. He doesn't know the father. Um, <laughs> but he is uh, He's excited to be that. It's a, it's a lot like uh, Schwarzenegger. Okay, we so, can't see so yours. So the question is, how on brand is this pick? I, okay, all right, hold on. Well, Before I, without seeing right, it. Right now he's sitting at a 10 out of 10 on us. All right, it is either... French New Wave, Italian GIO, David or Lynch. or Lynch. Incorrect. Okay. Transcendental. Transcendental. I damn it! I should have gone transcendental. You're right. It's all about no, Bazaar. He's he's recommended that probably more than any of them. Yeah. Movie. I love yeah. this movie so hey, very hey, Dustin, much. Can I borrow Azar Bazaar? Because I've been wanting to see that for like four hey, years. Don't try. Yeah. Well, let's not talk about it. I had a bad experience with my laptop trying to watch. Uh, this movie on Filmstruck, everybody. Yeah, I'm going home and watching this right away. That is an impressive run, okay. Keithan. Keithan, yeah. what thank a, you so much. You are the best. And I, this is this is how, listener, you get on the show is by being a super fan and listening to so much of this show that you can, like, fucking one-shot the Criterion pick that each one of us needs in our life. It's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 was, I went back and forth between uh, Thief and Night of the Hunter for you, but I was like, Ooh. you know. Yeah, I'd have been happy with know. either. So we got, we got obviously, we got the... The the cool crime drama, yeah. The coming of age film, yeah. And the transcendental, yeah. Transcendental, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the donkey becomes a saint. Well, yeah, you, that's on brand for you, me. You that's nailed impressive. it, man. He he got our brands down to uh, down to the wire. Uh, thank Keithan. You're the sweetest, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. You are such a kind soul. Now, in case you're tuning into the Good Trash Undercast for the very first time, <laughs> we don't always do unboxing um, little uh, things here, and we don't always get gifts. But what we do is, in fact, this. We have a synopsis from The Voice of the Cinema, which is spoiler-free, and then we have a thumbs-up, thumbs-down set of reviews, also spoiler-free. Then we play a game, which may or may not involve mild spoilers within the orbit of the film and other films in question. And then we get down to business, at which point there are no spoiler holds or embargoes placed upon us whatsoever and we will spoil everything uh from there so you've been warned dear listener so without any further ado let's go ahead and hear that synopsis from the voice of the cinema harry hole (laughs) (laughs) jk no no no. Um, these 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 holes are not harried this week we have that uh, we know of we we we've cleaned ourselves oh my Uh, we've purified ourselves (laughs) we have purified ourselves in the water of of oslo and uh, have emerged ready to talk about something else. That's right. We're going to be talking about Fallen Angels, which is this Hong Kong set crime drama follows the lives of a hitman hoping to get out of the business and his elusive female partner, which is really only half of the only story. Only half the movie. And I really wouldn't if even that. call this film a crime drama. It, nah. Well, there's crime. I mean, there, crimes happen, but... And there's drama. Some. Yeah, I, and then it's a dramedy. It's, it's not a crime drama a the way... Say Thief is a crime drama. This movie's doing something different. Indeed. So thank you for the pick again, Keithan. Uh, this is going to be a fun experience, I think, for us all. But well, we got him here, so let's know why this movie. Why this movie? Yeah, tell us your thumbs up, thumbs down, and why we had to do this. Uh, I guess uh, I watched it earlier this year on Filmstruck because I think a guy you guys know, Kenneth Kimbrough, Mm -hmm. uh, had 
I talked with him about Wong Kar Wai, and he's like, you need to watch this guy's shit. And then I was like, eh, I was watching. I had day off, and I was just looking for something to watch. Saw this on there. Boom, watch it. And uh, I don't know. I was just, I was very, very moved by the film. Love at first watch. Yeah, basically. Like, I I don't know. I can't, I don't know if I can count how many times I blinked while I watched this movie on, uh, I don't know, three hands. I don't have three hands. <laughs> but uh, if I did, I wouldn't. It'd be impressive. Yeah. You were immediately enraptured, though. Yeah, just from start to finish. The cinematography in this from Christopher Doyle is just crazy. There's so many the quick cuts and, like, camera angles, the music choices followed into the slow-mo. Just, I don't know, everything about it I thought I was like, I was like, this is, like, cool, but also, like, this sad, like, look at, like, loneliness and how people deal with that and like searching and like the longing for human connection and i don't know i was just very deeply moved by the film well that's a pretty good sales pitch now dustin uh stop unwrapping your movie i Uh, can't i I know you're very excited i I, I want to see the book i want to look at the book i have a question i I have a question for we can give them just 10 minutes to read the essay (laughs) we we were debating off air now that's about as much time as it takes him to do twitter so you might have time (laughs) that's a fair point uh we were talking off air about whether or not this movie was good trash. Now, Patreon picks, obviously. You've given us money. You are not bound by the rules of the show. You can make us watch whatever you want uh, within reason. I don't really think we need to watch uh, Debbie Does Dallas or Deep Throat. I mean, there might be an argument to be made for their impact on cinema. But There's an argument for Deep Throat, maybe. But, but we don't need to watch those. Otherwise, though, you know, no holds barred. Let us mm-hmm. make make us watch what you want us to watch. But we were talking off air. This kind of is good trash. Uh, and listener, if you're hearing, well, this is a Wong Kar Wai film. I know he's, he's a hot deal. It's international cinema. Uh, explain Dustin, why this probably isn't going to show up in a film studies course, why this is still probably in the realm of good trash. It doesn't fall within that sort of, uh, European art cinema, mm-hmm. you know, obviously not being European to start with, but it does it's not even like an Asiatic cousin mm-hmm. to that kind of film. It is very much pop cinema. It's very much, uh, it's also very much part of that early 90s independent American cinema movement, especially as uh, American independent distributors were finding these films and bringing them in. So it, it's part of American indie, but that doesn't necessarily make it uh, beyond the good trash either because American indie, there's just, it, it was just a lot of movies. It's just a slightly different brand of filmmaking than what you might see in uh, the big you know multiplexes or whatever. But I think speaking of that, that European art house, you, I think there's some kind of cinema – Verite touches, uh, verite rather, sorry, uh, to the film. You know, there's, sure. the, but nothing, you know, there's still, you know, gunfire and music. It's not, you know, a Dogma 95 thing that they're doing. Absolutely. But it, it not. definitely feels influenced by that, that movement in Europe that's happening around the same time. Absolutely. Sure. So it's, it's like a pop version of the art house. And yeah. so, it, as such, you know, in an indie cinema class, you would probably watch Chunking Express. In fact, mm-hmm. recently in an indie cinema class, we did watch pieces of Chunking Express. But not Fallen but Angels. But not Fallen Angels. Uh, because it is, uh, you know, some would say lesser. I don't think it's lesser, but they would say it's at least it's not new ground compared to Chunking Express. And so they would go with that or within the move for love or something else coming out of these things. And so this movie is it's fun, but it it's enough sort of background that it's more of an oddity and a curiosity and would not find its way on the syllabus, if that makes sense. No, I think that does make sense. Thank you for that clarification to the listener, because I think that's going to kind of help frame this narrative between 
uh, Keithan's immediate love for the film and kind of setting its place in the canon, as it were. Yeah, I mean, so far as I'm an authority on that. No, I mean, you know, I, I you just do a good job of explaining the canon sometimes because of all the many years you've spent in film academia. Well, and I think that's sort of the rationale that uh, a professor would use for constructing their syllabus. If they've said, okay, we're going to talk about, you know, 90s film, but they're going to talk about 90s Hong Kong film, it's going to get left out. If they're going to be talking about uh, Wong Kar Wai even as a section, this is a film that gets left out. Yeah. If they're talking about independent distribution of uh, independent American independent distribution of foreign films in the U.S., this is not the one that they would pick up. If they're going to talk about Hong Kong films where dudes shoot two guns at once, they they're going to talk John about John Woo. Yeah. yeah, they're going to talk Hard Boiled and the Killer. Yeah. So though all of those are City on Fire, um, all of those sort of things sort of keep this movie at arm's length, and that's where a lot of the hidden gems find their way. You know, and that they're they're great. It's good stuff, but it's not really that super uh, prestigious or super, uh, you know. Uh, like the sort of first instance kind of thing that film studies people sort of get strangely obsessed with for no reason. Um, Because I think first instances are just dumb. I don't think it's really any, what's the first time they use slow-mo? Who cares? What's the best use? You know, that's that's a better question. But nonetheless, that stuff is what happens here. And that's why this movie's, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of a lost gem. So, oh, okay. Well, hey, let's do some reviews, yeah? Yeah, I guess. Uh, so, Keithan has already given us a glowing review. I'm going to go to you first, Dalton. What do you say? Thumbs up, thumbs down, fallen angels. And note that the Patreon is right in the room as you say those words. I have never pulled a punch once in my life. I'm not going to start today. I-, I like it. I like it. I didn't fall in love with it uh, as immediately as you did, Keithan. I-, I definitely see the appeal. It took me a while to get on its wavelength, I think. Uh Knowing, I did look up just a little bit about the film going in because uh, I had some time waiting for uh, to figure out how I was going to watch this damn movie. Um, so I knew there was you know two stories that kind of interweave, but just barely. Um, but that, other than that, I didn't really you know have any concept of what was going on here, other than having seen one Wong Kar Wai film previously, The Grand Master, which has a significantly larger budget than this film. Uh, so going in, I was immediately taken with, you know, this this cinema verite stuff that's going on. All these handhelds, really tight close-ups, just kind of being in the moment, being in the action with the characters. And it just kind of blew me away. But then there's this gonzo, weird sense of humor that this film has that just kind of takes you off guard. And I, I was trying to figure out how to contextualize how I felt about this movie. And I found this, this really great... Uh, thing roger ebert had to say about the film and i know arthur has brought something to the table uh, as well that ebert had to say but i just feel like this really nails it and um, i'm going to come back to that because i don't have it ready <laughs> look this is what happens when you go live to tape sometimes these things these uh these things happen for me the thing that really helped me get into it was the the secondary story because we do start with the, this hitman killer that arthur mentioned in the synopsis uh, but there's this other story of hey this this mute who's kind of living on the fringes of Hong Kong society. Uh, this year, this film's made '95, uh, presumably set around the same time. So we're just a few years out from the handover uh, back to mainland China. So it's you know kind of an interesting time in, in Hong Kong's history. But the film doesn't really deal with that, other than how other explicitly i should okay. say the film doesn't deal with it explicitly never talks about it and yet it's it's everywhere right, right especially right. in the character of hey who's kind of living uh on the periphery of society and and that was when i really was like okay i i see what this film's doing because at first i was like well this is just 
this is a, a, a better version of all the American knockoffs of Reservoir Dogs that came out. I was like, this is honestly looks better than Reservoir Dogs. It's doing more formally inventive things. Sorry, Tarantino. I like that movie, but this is doing like a lot of like uh, just so many visual influences are happening in that first, you know, 20 minutes of the film. And then Hay comes along. And I'm like, okay, what is this like slap happy comedy that I'm watching? And I read this review from Ebert, and I was like, oh, okay, I, I think I get it. Ebert said, uh, giving the film three out of four stars, it's kind of exhilarating, and it's exhausting and kind of exhilarating. It will appeal to the kinds of people you see in the Japanese animation section of the video store, with their sleeves cut off so you can see their tattoos, and to those who subscribe to, the, to more than three film magazines, and to members of garage bands, and art students. It's not for your average moviegoers, unless, of course, they want to see something new. And I read that and I was like, okay, yeah, that, that covers it. That's what that is. Because we talk a lot about the, on the show from time to time about, you know, pro film watching, things that are not for everybody. And this is definitely not for everybody. It's not that inaccessible. It's just weird as hell. It's just, it's got a, a, a flavor and a style that is all its own. And I think once you can accept, as Dustin said, the, the oddity of it, the kind of, uh, what, what was the other word you used? There was another way you phrased it that I thought was really interesting. I don't remember Not now. important. But, uh, <laughs> let's, let's, let's stick with oddity. There, there's an oddity to it that really just kind of draws you in. You're like, what the fuck is this weird little movie? Uh, and, and as Keith mentioned, when I started to key into what the characters were experiencing, because I was like, all right, let's, let's get over what's holding me at arm's length and get at what, try to engage with what Wong Kar Wai is saying and trying to tell us about these characters. It's a film about loneliness and uh, a lack of direction. And I think that's something we get from all of these characters are people who are just kind of wayward uh, and don't have anything to kind of anchor them to life. And and Hay being the character most on the periphery of all the characters, I think his, his voiceover is what gives us, and again, the character's mute, so he doesn't have any dialogue, but he has a ton of voiceover. And I, I think it's his voiceover that really kind of gives you uh, an insight into what the film is getting at. And, and once I got on its wavelength, I really did kind of come around on it. So I, especially there, there's a final shot in this film that we won't spoil. That's just gorgeous. And it, it's just a truly little beautiful piece of, of movie magic. So uh, I, I'm a fan. I think I, it would require another viewing for me to like really fully uh, give it an honest try. But thanks, Keithan. I, I, I like this. This was an interesting one. All right. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Mr. Arthur Gordon, thumbs up, thumbs down, go. Yeah, I, I, I kind of come from that same background as Dalton. I, uh, I took me a bit to really get into what the movie was doing, and it was because I'd built this up as uh, kind of a straight-laced crime thriller about a hitman, and uh, that's not what this film is after no. about five minutes. Um, <laughs> and so uh, once I... Got past the guy massaging a dead pig on a butcher's table. Do love um, that scene. It is something else. I I, I, I was really kind of intrigued in it. I, 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 this is a movie I have a hard time, you know, giving a rating to or, you know, a star rating or anything like that. Same. Because it's an experience. I mean, this whole film is just about the experience. And I did find a couple of quotes that kind of helped me sum up my, uh, my thoughts. The first is from Scott Tobias uh, from an AV club, uh, New Cult Canon. Uh, entry uh, where he says there's very little tangible narrative architecture uh, true to Wong's jazz like improvisational style he doesn't seem to know where he's going until he riffs his way there uh, and he expects his audience to live similarly in the moment uh, and then uh, from Ebert's review uh, he says almost all films even the best ones are made uh, with a certain anxiety about what the audience will think will they like it 
get it, be bored by it. Wong Kar Wai, like Jean-Luc Godard, who he compares him to earlier in the article, is oblivious to such questions and plunges into his weird hyper style without a moment's hesitation. Um, and I, I think that really sums up this movie. I love that kind of analogy of the the jazzy improvisation. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great uh, a great way to describe the very frenetic uh, editing, the very gonzo uh, handheld, just in the streets on the motorcycles, just you know, in the moment. Uh, and I think that's the thing about this film; it is very in the moment. It's all about the experience, and it's all about the aesthetic and building these themes of of loneliness, of longing, of of hope, and of you know all those 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 different elements. Um, and I think that's fascinating. I, I it's kind of a tricky uh, territory. I think when a filmmaker does this, so that it doesn't come off as pretentious, mm-hmm. uh, something like a Shank Ruth. Uh, but he, I think Wong Kar nails it. I, I kind of like that style about it. Um, it's gorgeous. Um, it's it's a beautiful film. Uh, the colors, uh, just the way it's put together, it's composited. Uh, but there's a shot. I paused it at one moment to do something, and right when I paused it, there's a it's a shot in the bar. I think. Um, but just the spread of colors, it looked like a rainbow the yeah. way it was lit. It was just gorgeous. Yeah, as Keith has already mentioned, the cinematography in this film yeah. is jaw-dropping. It's on point, yeah. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to praise here. I mean, it's, like Dalton said, it's it's a film, you know, and, and the critics kind of allude to there in those quotes. It's, it's, not, a, it's not a classical film. It, it doesn't have that, you know, coherent narrative to really hook you in. Uh, it's not about a story. It's all about feeling and emotion and it's poetry on film and i i appreciate that quite a bit i i would like to get to more uh wong kar wai if i can say his name in, into my brain and kind of see some more what he's doing i know this is kind of a sequel or successor to chunking express so i'd like to see that and see some of the other stuff he's done um he's got a great visual style and sensibility and i appreciate that quite a bit so thank you keith and i'm i'm glad i watched this it adds another one to my 52 international films uh which is nice as well so thank you for that all right well thank you very much mr arthur gordon yeah i like this movie are you kidding me duh yeah this is right up your alley this is yeah yeah, this is a movie i like a lot and I, i will say this if you were to set out to make a movie in, 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 the, in the hands of most other filmmakers, and you said, what I want to do is I want to convey the ennui that we all feel in the 90s. I want to wrestle with questions of globalization. I want to wrestle with questions of desire and frustrated desire. And I want to wrestle with questions of national identity. And then you set out to write a movie that did that. It would be the most boring, dry, dusty track that you could ever experience. And what Wong Kar Wai decides to do instead is let's make all of those concepts into feelings. Let's communicate them visually rather than narratively. And let's string together enough narrative just to sort of put bones to it and let all the flesh and sinew and blood like Ezekiel's Valley of the Dry Bones look like the cinema rather than as experience, rather than as narrative thing. That's what you get when you get a movie like Fallen angels it is awesome and and that, and that sounds uh, more obnoxious than it is as arthur quite quite well alluded to this film threads that needle of already without being pretentious right super successfully and yeah arthur you mentioned that, that that's a territory that a lot of uh, a lot of lesser filmmakers fall uh, but yeah, this, this film does that very well, Dustin. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right. And you know, again, on paper, it's like a black and white film, and this film does use black and white with people only in turtlenecks and berets talking in cafes. That's what you'd have to do in the hands of most other filmmakers. But instead, we have this like a technic- Technicolor gore fest. You know, I mean, the gore of Technicolor itself mm-hmm. uh, just slap dashed all across the screen. It's so much fun. 
And it communicates all of those concepts and all of those ideas and all those sort of wrestlings and musings that, uh, again, somebody might – in the hands of a lesser filmmaker, would either become super pretentious, dry and dusty, or very much sounding like a first-year uh, undergrad student's poetry novel. Uh, just, just throwing journal. everything at the wall and, and not in a good way. And this yeah. film does throw everything at the wall. Correct. But uh, it does so quite successfully. So, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan. Uh, I've seen it before, and so I was, when, when I heard it, I was like, yeah, I'm all about that. And mm-hmm. um, I always always like Keithan's picks. So, uh, well done, sir, on uh, picking that for us. And we're glad that you've done that. Now, let's move on um, in our show, and let's talk about social media. That way I can look at my book. So uh, go ahead, Dalton. Uh, Yes, now it's time for the part of the show where I try to convince you to stay off of social media and to leave it alone and to not go there unless you're already there. Hi, it's Social Media Corner. Don't do it. Uh, Just say no, as uh, Nancy Reagan once told us about drugs. Just say no. Put your phone down. Get out of there. It's breaking our brains. Better to stay off Twitter. Dare. Dare to stay off of there. I didn't do it today. Couldn't do it. Uh, but, you know, if, if you find yourself uh, with an itch to scratch, we are there. We're at good underscore trash on Twitter. Probably the best way to get at us uh, and the best way to keep up to date with everything that we're doing over here at the Good Trash Media Network. Not just this show, but all of our other side projects, shows under our uh, podcast network's umbrella, like The Praise Down with Heath and Alex. A very, very good show that you should definitely be listening to. Uh, as well as our new content, uh, stuff uh, that Dustin's doing with his his uh, wee child, uh, A Bad Feeling About This, which is our our first real foray we, we gave it a shot once but our first real for what foray into video content how's that going so far dustin well we just dropped um episode one we had an episode zero and we sort of talked about what we're doing and uh, i watched a film that was banned for over 10 years in france and a rated x film with my son how'd that go it was awesome what'd you watch we watched uh john vigo's uh zero to conduit which is the inspiration for Lindsay anderson's if so a film from 1933 a uh, short film about 45 minutes long and then a full-out feature uh from anderson from 1968-69, depending on which uh, release dates you're working with. And he liked these things. He very much liked if uh, He liked Zero to Conduit, but would not suggest it to his friends, is what he said. Interesting. Well, if that sounds interesting to you like it does to me, uh, you can find that on GoodTrashMedia.com, or uh, on, do we have, is it on a YouTube it's channel? On, it's on the YouTube channel for the Good Trash Genrecast. Which is... Good, uh, just good trash genre cast on YouTube. Yeah, this is right, our there channel. You go. And again, also you can just find it on goodtrashmedia.com. Which Look, it, we just put this stuff out. We don't know how the internet works. Man, who even? What is the internet? What's an algorithm? Who, who, who a Bezos? What, what do jobs do? Um, <laughs> so that's Twitter. Uh, I, I will read some fun feedback. Uh, jobs feeds us. I, I will read some fun feedback uh, as Arthur alluded to. Uh, we did talk about the snowman last week and had a lot of fun talking about Harry Hole. Uh, we got uh, some <laughs> oh feedback on that episode from at KT Runt Uncensored uh, on Twitter who said, This was a delightful listen, and I absolutely will never watch that movie. Which, look, that's kind of what that episode was for. It was so you can learn more about The Snowman, which you will probably never watch. We did it for you. Generally, we are trying to convince you to watch movies on this show. Uh, but sometimes it's fun to just talk about a just a... Dumbass movie. All right, I'm going to hijack social media for a second Go and ahead. pose a question to our guest host, uh, who did indeed watch he The Snowman. Did watch The Snowman. Ethan, what did you think of The Snowman? Well, I mean, you can just listen to your episode. <laughs> <laughs> Go listen to the episode. A better plug for this show I have never heard. Of. Thank you, <laughs> Keithan. Uh, we are also on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash GTM. Stay off of there also. 
how do you want to be part of this without being on social media? Great question. You can send us an email, goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. Lots of Gs in there. Uh, that is the best way to send us long-form feedback and also just tell us what you think without having to uh, wade into the waters of the merry-go-round that is killing us all slowly. Uh, you can also just, you know, tell a person you like about the show. Uh, Keith, uh, how many people have you told about this show? Uh, probably... Um a baker's dozen. Good lord, I'm so sorry to all 13 of those people. Wow. That's maybe, a, maybe a couple more. That, I don't think any of them ever listen to me. No, that's fine. It, they don't listen a, to us but either. But hey, I told Bingo. them about it. He is the St. Paul of that's the good trash do, genre right? cast. He's our evangelist. It's the thought that counts, my dude, and uh, <laughs> we appreciate it. Uh, you know, do that. As Keith said, not everybody's going to listen to your recommendations, but uh, if you know somebody that's into film or into podcasts, that's a great way to be a part of what we're doing here with, again, not having to get on Twitter. Last but certainly not least, if you want to help keep the lights on, you can go to patreon.com forward slash GTM to throw us some money and maybe be just like Keithan and get your movie talked about, uh, a movie of your choice, rather. Well, maybe it's your movie. We might do that. Uh, get a movie talked about on this show. Um, if you buy us each movies and hand deliver them, you can be here as well. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I'll go ahead and go in for that. Yeah, if you buy all three of us a movie, you can also be a guest host just like Keith. Uh, that, that is it for Social Media Corner. Uh, obviously, rate, review, subscribe, all that crap that you've been told to do a thousand times by now. I'm done. Okay, enough of that foolishness. I for the record. Whoa, hey. Dalton loves to talk about Harry Hole every week. Harry Hole. We just have to edit it out. I do talk about it. Every single week. And now it's time to play the game. It might feel good, it might sound a little something, but damn the game, if it don't mean nothing, what is game? Who got game? Where's the game in life? Behind the game, behind the game. I got game, she got game, we got game, they got game, he got game. It might feel good, it might sound a little something, but fuck the game if it ain't saying nothing. Oh, so the thing back. about my Wait. bowel movements and oh, we're sorry, we're back on the air. Uh, I'm done talking about Harry Hole. Dustin, go ahead. Uh, we're back and we're going to play our game. This week's game is uh, cinematic art, uh, auteur blind spots. That's right, cinematic auteur blind spots. Brought to you by Kill It. Oops. Brought to you by Fallen Angels. Fallen Angels. It's a film directed by Wong Kar Wai, who is a director that is kind of a blind spot for a lot of people. What were you going to say, Killer's Kiss? I, man, I, my brain stopped working there for a second. So, yeah, we're going to talk about the directors we haven't seen very much of. And so that is going to be a lot of fun. I'm going to invite Keith into play uh, if you have anything you want to think of. So keep working on that. I know Keith just yeah. showed up to help us out and, and be here with us. But we got him in the studio. He's got a microphone. He might as well talk, too. So, yeah, keep, get those wheels spinning on some, uh, some auteur blind spots. So the circle goes like, yay. So I go to you first. Number first pick, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Go. I, I was really trying to think about this, and I, I was trying to come from it from a, you know, we mostly have backgrounds in film studies, and mm -hmm. so there are a lot of, how have you never seen so-and-so? And, and so I was trying to keep it in that. And so I think my first one, and, and I went back and forth, and I wanted to pick a European director, uh, but I think it's Francois Truffaut. Um, nice. You know, I mean, uh, with him and Godard kind of kickstarting that, that French new wave, uh, I've, I've seen some of the Godard stuff, but I haven't seen any of the Truffaut. And, you know, 400 Blows is definitely one that I need to get around to. Um, but for someone so kind of influential, not not only behind a camera, but also uh, academically as well, um, I think it's uh, one I need to definitely get around to. And that's probably one of my biggest blind spots, uh, especially internationally, I'd say. There are, there are a lot <laughs> internationally. I could go all day about foreign directors I haven't seen. 
Um, but I think Truffaut is probably at that top of the list for me. Awesome. So that's my that's my first pick is uh, Francois Truffaut. Number first from Arthur's that. Number first from Dalton Stewart. Go. Uh, before we do go, Arthur, uh, Wonka Wise is a blind spot for you as well, right? Oh, yes. This is the the first. I, I And it's a name I knew. I didn't know his style. I didn't yeah. know his aesthetic. I, I really didn't know much about him at all other than his name. It was a name I recognized mm-hmm. uh, and heard. Uh, usually, uh, with some high regard, it, it, it carries, I think, a certain uh, reputation with it. Um, but yeah, this was definitely a, a, he is definitely a blind spot uh, for me. And for me as well. I mean, again, I know I've, I've sung the praises on the the Grandmaster uh, on this show basically ever since that movie came out. But you know that that got my butt in the seat because of because of Punch Mups. So uh, that's the only other one I've seen. Dustin, how how versed are you on on Wonka Why? I've seen a lot of it, but I'm writing a dissertation about Hong Kong cinema. Okay, fair enough. So well, yeah, my, my first actual pick. I was just curious about how this this film actually operates. So you said all spot. that to say this. Damn you, Arthur. That's correct. I did. <laughs> Uh, I I, th- I thought the same thing you did, Arthur. A, you know, a European filmmaker that is like held in uh, high regard. That it's like, how have I not scratched an itch on this? And it is, in fact, uh, Robert Brisson, the director of Ahazar Balthazar. Oh man! Yeah. Uh, now Brisson's somebody I've been wanting to get into for a while, but especially with uh, me being a huge fan of First Reformed uh, from this year, uh, knowing that Brisson's a really big influence on uh, on that film, specifically for. Um, the the film. Oh my God! Help me out, Dustin. Uh, Diary of a Country Priest. No, um, the filmmaker of First Reform. My brain. Oh, Paul Schrader. Thank you, especially for uh, what a big influence Brisson is on Schrader, not just in First Reform, but also just the way he thinks about film. Uh, obviously, he wrote the book on transcendental film, literally. Um, so Brisson, yeah, that's that's a huge one for me, and uh, I look forward to borrowing your copy of A Hazar Balthazar and uh, getting into it. Or you could just watch it on Filmstruck. Uh, hey, <laughs> hey, PlayStation. Hey, Sony. Just get a damn Filmstruck app. You're killing me. Fact. Fact. I think it's actually on Filmstruck to get that done. I, better. I, I did, in fact, send a – yes, please put me on Was the, uh, the email list. Yeah. No, there's there's no email to send. It's just like if you want to know when, when we have an app oh, for this device, okay. let us know. But, hey, if you're listening and also want Filmstruck on uh, your gaming console – Go ahead and go on the website. I'm sure that the numbers of people who are saying we need this app will uh, will help. Maybe. I don't know. Who yeah. knows? I think it would be on PlayStation by now, but Sony doesn't play well with anyone no. except for themselves. No, they're real buttholes sometimes. Uh, Keithan, have you thought about any blind spots you've got, buddy? Yeah, I do. I've only seen one movie from this director, mm-hmm. and it wasn't until about the last 30 minutes, for the most part, I was bored to tears, but it was... <laughs> Uh, Yasujiro Ozu. Oh, Ozu. Okay, you get like going back to the early silent days of film. Oh yeah, but, a like huge this huge name in Japanese cinema. Yeah, but uh, I don't know. I watched it. He's just says he he really get brings home that slow cinema name that uh, he's really well known for. But uh, like I said, I was I think the movie I watched was about two and a half hours, but. Once you got to that sort of end bit, I was like, oh, okay, I now get, like, what this guy's going for. Like, he took a long time to get there, but then I looked back on everything I was watching, and I was like, man, I'm just such an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, a, but, that's a very pleasant and unpleasant feeling all at the same time. He's got a lot of those other classics like uh, Tokyo Story and Late Spring, some of those other... Green Tea Over Rice, yeah. That's the one I watched. Is that the one you watched? That's, yeah, it's good. It was very good. Like and uh, after had to think about it a little bit afterwards 
because I think that may have been my introduction to slow cinema. So there's a lot of Schrader coming up here because Ozu is one of those chapters in the Transcendental book, uh, Transcendental Cinema book. He talks about Ozu, and then he talks about Bresson, and then um, Carl Theodore Dreyer. So yeah, good pick, the Keith, and we we like that a lot. Um, my first pick is actually from France as well, from the left bank of the New Wave. I haven't seen a whole lot of Agnes Varda, and so I've seen the Gleaners and I. I think I've seen part of Cleo from nine to seven or whatever the numbers are, Cleo, and then there's numbers to numbers, um, whatever that film is. But I haven't seen a lot of Varda, and uh, she is you know, still a force to be reckoned with in cinema and was a huge influence later. And so you know, her, and I would give as like a secondary pick because I, I want to sort of cheat here, Chantelle Ackerman is another French filmmaker who sort of follows in her uh, oeuvre. I saw only one of her films, and I like Ackerman a lot from what I have seen. Um, so... That um, No Home Movie is the uh, Ackerman film that I sort of was introduced to her with, which was one of my best films of that year in which it was released. So those are uh, my first selections. So we're going to go on to number next. Arthur Gordon, what's your number next pick? Uh, I wanted to go with the classical American director who I was just really kind of blind on, and I, I went with John Ford. Um, kind of the, the auteur, I think, for American cinema for a long time outside of – uh, Hitchcock when he would rear his ugly head. Uh, but as far as American purebreds, I think John Ford's at the top of that list. Um, and he's one I'm, I'm real blind on. I, I don't know that I've seen much of it. I think he did one or two with uh, Bogart, which I may have recently watched, but I can't even name him. You know, I, I was more focused on Bogart than I was Ford. Uh, and, and so he's definitely at the top of that list as one I need to go back and watch. Um, Treasure of the Sierra Madre? Is that Ford? Uh, it may be, or is that Hawks? It may that be Ford. Maybe Hawks, yeah. I don't remember. No, I'm, I think that one's, pretty sure that one's Ford. Yeah. So that's, that's one I haven't seen. But, Back um, check with dear listener. Yeah. Uh, so John Ford is definitely uh, one I, I, I would like to add. I, I You know, he's one of the forefathers of American cinema. Um, and just a big blind spot for me. And it's kind of sad. I, 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 I'm, I'm trying to get more into that uh, period, uh, kind of the golden age of Hollywood. Uh, and, you know, Bogart's kind of been my introduction to that and, and some of uh, Hepburn, Catherine Hepburn. Uh, and, and so I think John Ford might be the next evolution in that, that phase. Awesome, awesome. I like that pick very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what's your number next pick? Uh, I, again, am in line with Arthur in terms of my thinking on my next pick. I wanted a, a big heavyweight of American cinema, somebody that is, you know, just up there in the echelons that I have not really experienced a whole lot of, and it's Stanley Kubrick. Um, now, I'm a little bit more versed on Stanley Kubrick than I am on Brisson. Uh, I'm a big fan of 2001. I actually got to see it in IMAX this weekend uh, for the, only the second time that I've ever seen the film. Uh, it Did was, you just pick Kubrick so you could tout that? No, it's just, it's just bared mentioning. Uh, because That's it, why he did it. It's we a, all know. It's a Kubrick film that I've, I've seen. Yeah. Uh, I've seen Full Metal Jacket. been years. I've seen The Shining a handful yeah. of times. That's it. Seen seen, I haven't seen Clockwork Orange. I haven't seen Doctor Strangelove. I haven't seen Lita. I haven't seen Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah. I mean, Barry Lyndon. I haven't seen Barry Lyndon. I'm never going to watch Barry Lyndon. Oh, Barry Lyndon's so good. <laughs> whatever. And see, this is what stops me from watching Kubrick. I'm just like, I don't care. I've seen enough of his movies to know I like him. I, you know, I, I would rather go, you know, check out Abbas Kiarostami because I haven't seen any Iranian cinema. And that yeah. was actually an honorable mention for my blind spots is just Iranian cinema in general, whether it's uh, Kiarostami or Jafar Panahi. Like, I have, and that, that's another in terms of international cinema. That is, Iranian cinema is up there in terms of stuff people talk about is you got you to gotta check this out. But I did want to pick a, uh, a legend in American cinema, so that's my second pick is Stanley Kubrick. Awesome. I like that pick very much, Mr. Dalton. Mr. Keith and Smith, what say you? Your number next pick. 
Uh, I think I'm going to go the same route that uh, Arthur went and pick another uh, heavyweight from the Golden Age, possibly one of the biggest heavyweights, one of the only directors to ever get the Grand Slam at the Oscars. I'm going to go with uh, Frank Capra. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I've only, uh, believe it or not, I've never seen It's a Wonderful Life. That's not my introduction to Capra. Represent. Uh, It was, uh, it happened one night. I watched it on Filmstruck here a while back, and... The mo- that was the movie he got the Grand Slam for, and yep. it just blew me away. Talk about, like, a movie where, like, as far as, like, a road movie, like, love story, like, it's yeah. everything should try to follow that. Every single movie like that should try to follow that film's format. And he's just got plenty of other, like, classics, like, you know, Mr. De- uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. <laughs> Old McDonald had a farm. <laughs> yeah, of course. The, the There's a lot of people who go to towns in this or some some kind of cities in his movie. Uh, you know, uh, Arsenic and Old Lace. He's got all those cl- classic yeah. Hollywood movies. He, he does. And, uh, I mean, if it's not for Capra, I mean, if it's not for It Happened One Night, it's I, I can't believe that's Paramount or if it's Columbia, but it single-handedly saved that studio and made it a player. Yeah. Uh, that That's the power of Capra. Um but yeah, it happened one night. If you are a fan of screwball comedies or road trip movies or or uh, romantic comedies, uh, that's the grandfather of them all, uh, the grandmother of them all. However you want to say it, yeah, um, it's it's a great movie. Uh, Clark Gable's a blast. Yeah, uh, it felt like watching it. It didn't feel like I was watching a movie from yeah. like the what thirties or forties, yeah, roughly around there. Like it felt as fresh and new as it probably was back then. So. You know, got to go with the old golden weight. All right. Thank you very much for that. That's a good pick. Um, My number next pick is also uh, in the golden age of Hollywood, uh, just somebody I've missed, and that's Douglas Sirk. Um, Douglas Sirk, now, uh, he he is known for his melodramas. Uh, The most, uh, probably most well-known films that he made are All That Heaven Allows and also Written on the Wind. Both of them are starring Rock Hudson. Lauren Bacall was in Written on the Wind. And uh, they're 50s melodramas. But if you look at film scholarship in the 70s and the 80s, if you look at genre film studies about Hollywood, the Hollywood melodrama is a huge part of that. And it's not something that we even deal with much on this show. And uh, I mean, I, I've done a little bit of work with uh, like the uh, the twenties melodrama, like D.W. Griffith's work, and uh, some other filmmakers that are doing that kind of work. But the melodrama is just not something we talk about very often uh, because, uh, well, film noir was the melodrama with blood, and it's much more cool. And also, I'm never going to watch a D.W. Griffith's film. Well, there's also that. And yeah. yeah, I don't. Yeah, don't care to get into that. Yeah, Lillian. Well, Lillian Gish is great, but you know those those sort of vehicles are where uh, Griffith comes in. But the melodrama was a major section of Hollywood filmmaking, and uh, I don't know Douglas Sirk at all. And that's a section when I'm reading genre study stuff, and I'm writing a dissertation again about genre film, uh, as particularly um, Hong Kong genre film. But that being said, genre film studies, especially in English, um, deal with a lot of melodrama, and I don't know much about it at all. And so uh, Douglas Sirk is a huge blind spot who is a person that everybody talks about. Jean-Luc Godard just gushes on him. And, uh, man, I don't know anything about it. So Douglas Sirk is a massive blind spot for me. Moving on to number last, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I see you fumbling quickly there. But do you have a number last pick? I do. I'm going back and forth in my head between two uh, directors. And I think uh, both have made seminal work. Um, 
and I, I think I've got to go with uh, Francis Ford Coppola. I've only seen The Godfather and Jack. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I think that's that's where I've got to settle because The Godfather Part 2 and Apocalypse Now are, are probably two of the most seminal uh, American films, at least out of the new Hollywood, um, with a far-reaching influence. I mean, The Godfather and its you know sequel, The Godfather Part 2, have, have kind of been ingrained and rooted in uh, pop culture and in American cinema. Uh, and, you know, despite the latter part of his career, um, he's still, I think, heralded and touted as one of the the American greats. And uh, so I, I think I'm going to go with him. Uh, my honorable mention was going to be um, Roman Polanski, um, mainly because of Rosemary's Baby in Chinatown, uh, which yeah. are, the, are, are, again, two of those big works. But I think... I think Apocalypse Now and and The Godfather Part Two definitely overshadow uh, Polanski's you know influence and uh, reach. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. That new Hollywood uh, dive is an excellent choice, Mr. Arthur Gordon, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What say you for your number last pick? Uh, my number last pick. I wanted to go with a, a contemporary filmmaker, and I wanted to. to touch on somebody no uh who's uh, i have Christopher no Nolan. exposure no uh i went with <laughs> andrew i'm gonna stop the suspense it's andrea arnold oh uh, andrea arnold yes yeah who i uh, you know i've heard great things about fish tank and her adaptation of wuthering heights and, and some really interesting things about american honey i mean that's the, it's just three three for three three movies i love yeah i know sure. uh and uh i know she she is somebody who has a lot of acclaim um and, and just a filmmaker i have not gotten to um, I, I almost uh, went with Lynn Ramsey, but mm. I love We Need to Talk About Kevin, and I will probably be watching You Were Never Really There uh, or Here, with whatever. You Were Never Really mm. Here. Yeah. yeah. Here. I, I plan on watching that within the next couple of weeks. You've uh, had time. Yeah. I, I'm, it's coming. It's coming. Mr. Dalton. I know. I you gave me – you put it on your voodoo. You gave me all the clues. Uh, you gave me all the access. <laughs> Instead, I watched Spider-Man Homecoming again, <laughs> abusing your voodoo. Look, sometimes you just want to eat a bowl of candy. Um, but Way too often. So, yeah. Uh, Andrea Arnold is is my final pick for Filmmaker Blind Spots. Excellent. I like that pick a lot. Okay, Keith, and what is your number last pick for Filmmaker Blind Spots? Now, I guess I, guess I recently found out about this guy, but I've just been – curious from the few things that i know that i've heard about them so i don't know if it's really a blind spot or uh oh i heard about this person and whatever but you know i'm going with it it's uh this finnish director called aki kurosmaki i think I, Ooh, tell me more yeah but i guess uh dustin's he, never heard of him so that's uh that's really? something i don't know who you're talking about no he did this series I, I first found out about him because I saw that he had this Eclipse series called Leningrad Cowboys. Okay, I've heard of those movies, but I didn't know the director. And uh, they were like, I watched a little bit of the first one, but I didn't. I didn't end up finishing it. But it was just sort of like this, like weird, very dry comedy, like sort of like this commentary, this band, like this really shitty band coming over to America and like trying to like make it and like touring across America and huh. all this crazy stuff happens to him. But like it just never phases him. I don't know. Was, but he's got, I guess, this other trilogy or whatever that he called. Dang it, I think it's called like his The Refugee Trilogy. Mm -hmm. Like uh, I think he. One of the movies that in that just came out on Filmstruck, the other side, I think the other side of hope, 
and I think the first one is called like Le, Hav- Le Havre or something like that. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I know Le Havre. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I know I, the movie. I, I have actually heard of that. Okay, yeah. cool. Uh, I just know that Leningrad Cowboys is one of the coolest names for anything that I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's fun. And I, I found it even more wilder that even after those movies like came out, like that band had like a prolific touring career. <laughs> Like, the people in the movie, and then, like, they just changed out members over the years. But I guess uh, that's somebody that I guess I want to dig more into and get to know because he sounds like a funny guy making some good films that have a lot of good stuff to say about the world at large today. The Cinema of Finland. Thank you for awesome. that, Awesome, yeah. Keep us updated as you work your way through that. I want to know, know more things about that and whether or not I need to spend some time on that because that sounds awesome to me. Dustin, close us out, my guy. What is your final uh, on-tour blind spot? Okay, so the last pick I've got is an Indian filmmaker from uh, the uh, subcontinent of India, Satyajit Ray. Satyajit Ray, yeah, yeah, the Apu trilogy. And I've not seen any of them. It's a big, it's a big blind spot for me, too. Zero? Too? No, yeah, or, I've seen zero. I've things. seen Music Room. That's it. Have you? I haven't yeah. seen any of this stuff. You know, pa- Pather Pachali is like yeah. the big famous film that, that is on like a lot of lists, and is which a, is the first entry in the Apu trilogy. The, the I believe. Apu trilogy. But I, I know the whole trilogy is held in really high regard. And so, yeah, I just don't, I don't know the thing about this, but I like Italian neorealism, and so the way in which that connects to that apparently is a big thing. It's uh, he's a filmmaker that was talked about a lot, along with Douglas Sirk in. Uh, Mark Cousins' uh, The Story of Film, uh, which is at, which was on Netflix. It is no longer there, but it's this long, multi-part series uh, just talking about what film is and cinema is. And it's very formalist in its approach, which is really, really cool. And uh, when Cousins talked about uh, Ray, I was like, okay, I need this person in my life. Now, have I done that? No, but I still need to, and I wish to do so. So uh, Satgijat Ray, uh, however you pronounce his name. Satgijat. Yeah, I'm gonna mangle That's that. Right. I, I I happened to hear it on a podcast, so I'm I'm just here to help. Yeah, thank you for that. And uh, so that Ray is who I would like to see next. Uh, so there you go, dear listener. Those are our selections for uh, cinematic. Outer blind spots. If you've got a blind spot that you don't mind airing in public, you can let us know via social media, and uh, we'll talk to you about that and uh, give you recommends if it's something we know. And if not, we'll say good on you. Let us know how that works out for you. <laughs> so uh, I guess without any further ado, though, it's probably time to get down to business. This week's game is uh, <laughs> Auteur Blind Spots. Uh, we, are, we already did that. We already did that, man. Oh, I, sorry. I was asleep. <laughs> I was driving my ice cream truck uh, around. <laughs> your, your second job? Yeah. Arthur does this entire show in a fugue state. Yes, I do. Uh, and I just force people. Keith is here in gunpoint. I'm forcing him to listen to us. I won't oh, let go of his hair. We are going to give you a shave before you leave, so uh, get ready for that. Oh, no. And make you just eat so much ice cream. I'll pay All you. I'll pay cream. you. No. I'll pay you. No. Oh, you already gave me the movie. I guess we can let There it are some legitimately great comic beats in this film. Dude, do enumerate them, sir. The, 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 we've mentioned a few times the dead pig massage. This is super funny. Um, the ice cream truck, the, mm-hmm. the, the multiple sizes of cones. Mm-hmm. Uh, he continues to give them the larger containers of ice cream. My, my favorite bit about that is when he's on the phone with presumably his spouse. Yeah. And, uh, w- but he's like, 
no, I'm I'm stuck in this truck eating ice cream. Okay, if you don't believe me, you can come down here. And they and bring, they bring the, the whole family. family. It's so funny. Um, when they're trying to burn down Blondie's apartment, and they keep going to the wrong floor. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> really good, really good. There's yeah, there's just some great Take massaging. bits. One yeah. of my favorite darker, at least I thought it was really funny. Darker bits was like after. Uh, the hitman like goes and hit does like the first big hit and then you see him get on the bus. Yeah. And the his, guy's like his buddy Ming? from junior high. Ming, Ming, is that Ming, you? Is that you? <laughs> oh my god, yeah. That's that's so funny. The insurance salesman. Yes. Yeah, the insurance that's salesman perfect. who he just wants says him to come to his wedding the yeah. entire time. He just kind of nods at him. It's the yeah. perfect relatable moment. Um mm-hmm. a small one is when uh when Hay is shooting the video of his father cooking mm-hmm. the steak. Yeah. And then he goes low and gets a shot of his, his balls. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> which is such a son thing to do. Yeah, or or like opening the bathroom door to yeah. throw toilet paper at him. He locks his dad yeah. in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, there's some there's just some delightful moments in this movie. Yeah, it's really funny. It's, it's sharp. It, it, it's hilarious. And yet, with all its hilarity, it is so desperately sad. Mm. And I, I, that's what I want to sort of tap into first because it is all about this sort of desire – and not even really knowing what you desire, which sounds like the 90s in North America. It's a globalized 90s. Mm-hmm. And so sounds that, like a 20-year-old. Well, I mean, especially with the handover about to happen, mm-hmm. I mean, there's like this real existential dread over Hong Kong. We um, that It gets dealt with in Infernal Affairs, which we've talked about here on the show. And, you know, at the time, I didn't really know as much about that period in Hong Kong's history, so we didn't really talk about it, as I recall in that episode. But I've kind of lo- learned a little bit more since then, and I guess, yeah, it's... Much like it was in the U.S., it, the mid to late 90s was just kind of a real existential ennui for Hong Kong. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, they want something, and they don't quite know what it is that they want. And so, I mean, I mean, the greatest sort of uh, example of that sort of desire is uh, the, uh, the, the, the partner of the hitman. Who is unnamed, yeah. Who is unnamed. And uh, she wants him, maybe... Him in theory? I'm glad you went to her because as I was watching this movie, I, I, I found myself troubled by the depiction of women in this film. And the more I thought about it, the less troubled I was because I feel like that's what the film's doing. Yeah, it's talking about how women are often marginalized, especially heterosexual women are marginalized in the lives of men. Um, and I think the film does a really good job of tackling that without you know being too on the nose. It, it was so not on the nose about it that I kind of missed the point for yeah. a while. Um, and at first was a little annoyed with Wong Kar Wai, uh, especially because in, in The Grandmaster, uh, gender politics uh, really play into the film in a pretty big way. So at first I was I didn't know what to make of it. And, yeah, the, the character of the hitman's assistant is just the saddest character. I mean, it's a real bummer. I mean, there, there's some – there's a real interesting subversion there. That's speaking of, you know, this ennui that she has, there's a – some male gay stuff that happens when, because uh, part of the arrangement she has with him is she cleans his apartment while he's out on jobs, uh, and she, she masturbates in his bed while he's not there. Uh, and then there's another scene uh, later on in the film that leads you to believe that the, we're seeing this again, and she's not. She's crying because mm-hmm. she's realized he's going to quit, uh, and she's just crying in his bed. And again, that was a moment where I was like, well, we're getting a lot of her butt in this shot. This is kind of gross. And the more I thought about it, the more I was like, yeah, no, all – she she's trying to have like at least a a working friendship with this guy that she's attracted to and he has no interest in it he likes we get this this dueling voiceover from the two of them she talks about what she's looking for in a partner and what he's talking about is i like that about her as a partner she leaves me alone and i don't have to be friends with her and it's it's seeing 
those dueling perspectives that really made me kind of key in on on that aspect of the film. Yeah, yeah. it's it's really great. Yeah, and I, I mean, and that's sort of like the, the 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 status of affairs in late capitalism, right? Is that we are told that to want, we're told to consume, but we're really not told what to want per se. And as desire just compounds upon greater and greater desire, all then we begin to know in that sort of system is is desire, but not what we desire. And so it's it's jouissance, it's very Lacan, right? It's like we, we, we want the thing, but we don't know what the thing actually is. It's the petite object ah. And so we want it, but once we get anything anything that's a piece of it, we find out it's not actually what we wanted in the first place. Which is insane. Right, so that's the first thing I, I, I thought about quite a lot in this film. Well, it's hard not to. I mean, because uh, this, this globalism and late-stage capitalism is uh, represented quite explicitly in McDonald's, which right. is where uh, Ming uh, meets Blondie. Yeah. Right. Uh, another woman who he marginalizes in his life is told what her expectations are and completely ignores them and says, well, these are what my expectations are, and this is what we're going to do. Right. And I think uh, here's another thing. The, the, the most vacuous moments, the sort of most meaningless moments, most meaningless desires are those of Blondie, mm-hmm. right? And then those of he, uh, mm-hmm. when he is uh, with the sort of idea of – what is her name? Uh, she's get credited as Charlie. Cherry and Charlie. Cherry and Charlie. Before she's Charlie. That's, before, I think she's Cherry first and – didn't Charlie? I don't know. I, I don't remember either, unfortunately. But when when he wants her as an idea, his hair turns blonde, and he talks about his Russian ancestry and this idea that you know it, it, this sort of cut and paste sort of standard um, you know capitalist uh, heteronormative coupling. That's what he's after, and that's what he wants because it's what society tells him that he's supposed to want. They supposed to be after. I'm a late bloomer. We're supposed to fall in love by the time we're in our teens or twenties, and I I finally fell in love. You know, here at this time with this person, and this idea that he he loses his Hong Kong ness. He well, which is Taiwanese by way of Hong Kong. He tells us in his story, but he loses Chinese ethnicity uh, by sort of just conforming to the images. And, okay, yeah, and that's really interesting. I didn't pick up on that. Yeah, and, I like and, that take. And she, uh, you know, blonde herself has just given herself entirely over and that's do you mean Char- charlie no blondie in the oh, other story okay. the yeah. other yeah who is also our, blonde our yeah. other blonde character gotcha yeah. sorry and, and has given herself over, and so she's very empty and vacuous as well because she she's running away from her chinese chinese-ness you know in this or hong kong-ness and so it's dealing with this who are we now in this world that's now globalized. You know, we're part of a sort of uh, more globalized world under British rule. We're about to become part of mainland China in 1997. So what are we now? Who are we now? And if all we have to de- move us is our desires, we lose all of our sort of personalized identity, right? Well, and I, I think that gets summed up very well in Charlie slash Cherry, right? Because – a lot of her time spent with he while he is falling in love with her, she just wants to kill Blondie, yeah. uh, who is apparently a run off with her, her boyfriend, Johnny. Uh, and she is just in this complete manic state. Uh, and by the time we see her again, um, she's doing great. Uh, doesn't remember he at all. And he's, he's not sad about this. He's kind of like reconciled this uh, idealized longing that he had for her. He's just happy that she's doing well, and he's happy to be doing his own thing, breaking into shops again. And it's kind of like the sweetest little coda to that that aspect of the film. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to talk about mirrors and cameras. Okay. Because, man, there's a 
bunch of them. There's a bunch of times where you're seeing characters huh. in mirrored reflections, and you don't even realize it necessarily. Then it moves over to them, and this sort of again separation from the self, the sort of alienation uh, that characters feel. And then he um, talks about uh, somebody who owns or operates or is sort of the money man behind one of the shops that he gets involved with that was a former filmmaker. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. Worried that no one would watch his films. Worried that no one would see what's going on. And that's when he sort of falls into making movies. And the only time he is able to connect with his father, really, is when he watches his father watching his movies yeah. of himself. And that part of what this uh, sort of society has created is this real separation even from your very self that you don't know who you are you don't know um what again sort of what you desire but um that because of the sort of um multifaceted nature of identity now that um identity is so fractured that people find themselves in a state of just schizophrenia which is what pretty much what happens with sherry slash charlie i i well i think that's part of the just in, in more general terms, I think that's the great power of cinema. Yeah, is is that ability to uh, uh, kind of look out of yourself and and look at a reflection of yourself or society through you know characters or genres or so film the, the itself. disassociation. And, yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking about that too, Arthur. I'm right there with you because I, I think it's the same thing, right? It's it, it allows he to kind of see himself outside of himself yeah. and realize what's important to him, and it, it is that. That need to look at yourself in the mirror or, or that yeah. need to look at stories and see yourself represented in stories and see, oh, that that's who I am. Yeah. I, and sometimes you can't do that from inside your own noggin. Yeah. Well, not only he, but, you know, he's father who mm -hmm. is able to use these home movies to kind of overcome this kind of trauma in his life when his wife has passed away. Killed by an ice cream truck. <laughs> Terrible. Such a silly <laughs> ass movie. It's not funny. Again, as we're talking about this very serious stuff. This there it is. Silly Kill by an ice cream truck. Kill by an ice cream truck. It's, it's perfect. Um, but yeah, I, 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 you know, I think that speaks to the, just the power of film. But uh, De Hay, but you know, De Hay is kind of you know this worker, this this man that he's known and presumably probably ran his shop at night. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, just it, it allows you all to kind of take a step back to to find out something new about yourself or to work through something or process something that you maybe previously have not because of that disassociation. And I think that's part of what the, that element of the film is going to. And I, I think some of the critics I read have kind of associated that as the real auteur reading of this film, right? That, you know, he is probably the author insert here of, of, yeah. of, of Wong Kar Wai. And then, uh, and that element of the filmmaking is him looking at his career where he is a, as a person and what he had done previously and where he was going to go. And somebody I read, I can't remember if it was Tobias or if it was Ebert, are, are mentioning that it's, you know, it's him looking at his career and the youth and the folly of that uh, before moving on to something more mature and more adult uh, mm -hmm. in, the, in the coming years, which I think is another interesting look on that. It's really interesting, Arthur. I was just thinking about this as you were talking about when he kind of forms this relationship with this Japanese filmmaker. Um, when he is at his lowest, it's when he has a real job. It's when he's working at this bar, uh, tending the grill. Uh, and it's the only time that him and Ming intersect in the film. And it's when they're both kind of existentially at their lowest. Ming, knowing that he wants out, knowing that, um, he's ruined this relationship with his partner and thinking like, what do I do now? And like asking like, Hey, how do I, how do I start like a, a bar? How do I start like a, a, a food stand in a bar? Uh, and he's talking to, to his boss and uh, it's just kind of this weird moment. As Dustin mentioned, it's, he is ended up in this place cause he doesn't know what he wants and he's ended up heartbroken. So he's doing this thing that's kind of antithetical to who he is, which is 
having a real job. Right. Which is a, a really kind of interesting moment in the film that I think just kind of uh, puts a really great punctuation mark on all the things we've already talked about Absolutely. is that scene. So, I mean, that's the narrative stuff. Um, I do want to talk about the formalism of the film, though, because it is formally really, really interesting. And in the hands of a lesser filmmaker, I would suggest that um, I think what's going on for the most part in the visual choices of the film is um, sort of a psychological anti-realism. And what I mean by that is it's not realism insofar as it, – it's, it's, it's what expressionism did in the yeah. 1920s. Mm-hmm. It is showing the psychological states of the various characters, but it doesn't fall into cliché. I mean there are moments where, um, for instance, uh, the assistant uh, to the hitman is uh, it was shot in black and white when she is at a very, very low, stark sort of position, right? And that that is cliché. But those are – the, the exceptions rather than the rule. So when you have this sort of hyper uh, excited sort of moment where everything is happening really, really fast, the use of not only slow motion but a reduced frame per second in the shooting, that uh, extends it's, that slow motion feel. Well, and handheld. I mean, right. the gunfights in this film do, you know, Paul Greengrass, uh, born identity or born, you know, born film, uh, quick cuts. You know, ten years before that. Mm-hmm. I mean, in in the the scenes where uh, Ming the Hitman goes to do his jobs, the action shooting in these is again ten years ahead of its time. It's really pretty friggin' remarkable, honestly. Like the first time that he goes to a hit, I was just like, "Holy shit, this was made ninety five. Well, even it blew like, me away. Well, he's doing that, but also he's like using like time lapse. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, that reduced frame per second oh, there. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's what that's what catches those jerks. Like a like a twenties movie played at regular speed. Yeah, it's doing it in slow motion yeah. with blur. Right. Yeah. Well, no. Arthur's talking about uh, the, the uh, we get street corners as kind of this reoccurring transition. Is that what you're talking yeah. about? Yeah. And we we see oh, yeah, the, yeah. the time elapse of the traffic. Yeah. And yeah, those are really cool. And again, this uh, something that. Uh, uh, was getting used a bit in the 90s, but I don't know how much it was getting used in 95. I can't really recall off the top of my head, but right. it's really a, a super effective transition uh, using the, the time lapse of these street corners, which is often how it's used, but it just... I don't know. There's, there's something a little bit magical here, even though you've seen it before. And, and those moments when those characters are most inside their own heads, mm-hmm. and those are usually moments where we have the voiceover monologues, that use of a fisheye lens. That yeah. sort of wide, you know, it's, it's a wide-angle lens, but it's got that fisheye in it, so it, 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 it extends the face and the head of the character. Because where we're living is where they're living, which is just between their ears, right? Which is and a really interesting bit of uh, visual vernacular that's not – was, was – not cliche it is not cliche and so just really i'm just fascinated uh by those choices uh there and of course the garish color uh when it's being used in those most excited times versus the muted colors at those other times it's just it's a different palette for that kind of thing than what you're typically used to in cinema yeah no it's uh, man i I keep going to the those uh those hit scenes uh speaking of those garish colors it just the, the first one in particular is uh, – and Keith mentioned when we first started the music cues. There's this this bit of uh, a Hong Kong or, or Chinese hip-hop that kind of recurs as he goes on jobs. And it's just like a really cool piece of music, but um, it's following him through like because a subway. Because I'm cool. Yeah. Because I'm cool. Yeah. And it's this tight – and it's just kind of this simultaneous like being everything that action movies are and sending it up at the same time. It's super effective. It, it gets to have its cake and eat it too, which is 
pretty rare when somebody's trying to comment on violence in film. Uh, I, I was I was kind of blown away by those segments. Speaking yeah. of those those uh, those shooting choices and those um, manipulations of, of form throughout the movie. Absolutely. Well, is there anything else that we absolutely want to address? Is there anything, Keithan, that you want us to address? Or have we covered the material well enough for you? And, uh, gentlemen, my co-host, is there anything that you guys feel like we need to make sure we talk about before we move on to the next section? Well, I will leave it to Keithan first. Yeah, is there is there anything that you would really love us to have talked about that we haven't touched on yet? Well, I guess I just kind of liked uh, how later on uh, how uh, Hay gets, like, sort of like his own music cue that re- reoccurs later with his father during like after he's passed mm-hmm. and then like while they're shooting the video yeah you're right i i i'd kind of forgotten about that but yeah there is that recurring bit of music and it's obviously a, a lot lighter i mean it, but I, it, it does I score him very well uh, i uh like aside from hey and charlie's like relationship happening like the looking at uh, the relationship between like him and his father. That was another thing I thought you guys would like about the movie is there's this, there's the whole father son thing. Mm-hmm. You guys like talking about that. There is. Yeah, we we do and tend to I, talk about that. I just really liked how uh, their relationship was just like they're both just these two like loner guys that like eventually like figure out like throughout the film like how to. You see them express that love for each other in mostly, like, oddball, funny, comedic ways, but it's, I don't know, at the same time, like, really, I don't know, beautiful. Absolutely. When he crawls in the bed with his dad just to film them. uh, It's It's the sweetest. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. And then, like, there's that shot earlier when he, like, he pans over and you see the camera on the uh, head their dresser mm-hmm. and then you see it like after he passed like them the shot that was filming or whatever them sleeping there in the bed like the full shot or whatever i don't know yeah it's awesome no i think you, you put it very well Keaton. yeah I, I was gonna say that i i, I was I, I i mentioned this off air i don't remember, i don't think i mentioned on air but i was definitely more drawn to hayes story me uh, too throughout. and i yeah. think partially is it's it's obviously the more relatable because none of us are hitmen. No, um, but we all have daddy issues. I'm also not um, a, a mute prison escapee though either. But yeah, no, we do all have daddy. We issues. all do have our daddy. Well, issues. he might be a prison escapee, but he certainly isn't mute. Um, and somehow we but probably all just avoided uh, prison. Uh, I think just by luck and skin of our teeth. Yeah. So I mean, we're all uh, we're a real oceans oceans eight kind of crew here. That's for sure. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I think that father narrative is just really powerful and i think the fact that they do bond over cinema i think also speaks to our uh our own journeys you know mm-hmm. uh as well uh so it's real reflective and just that 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 shot of the his chair sitting in front of the, the yeah, tv good. uh was just as powerful when and they sit in the chair to to plug the camera in and yeah. watch it one more time yeah, yeah it's great so it's, it's great and again yeah. I, I think the film does it really kind of eloquently without hammering home about it's not about film in any way and really it's more about seeing yourself outside yourself than it is about film and again I, that goes kind of back to my point in my review is this this film balances that type of very surreal very uh, avant-garde type of filmmaking but it knows when to rest it mm-hmm. knows when to hold it knows exactly when to put the pieces down and, and and it goes back to that kind of jazz improvisation thing it knows how to play the notes it knows when to riff and it knows when to you stick know, to the music yeah, yeah it knows when to crescendo it knows when to you know retard it knows when to play 
the notes. And I think that's the powerful thing about this film. And in the hands of a lesser director or a more cocky director, you know, uh, you, a lot of the reviews say this is, you know, brash filmmaking. Wong Kar Wai is kind of very bold in your face. And that's, I think, you know, probably a fact just looking at the film, the colors, the way it's shot, and the frenetic, kinetic style. Um, but I think it's got a very measured hand behind it, uh, kind of wise beyond the years type of outlook. And, and, you know, in hindsight, I think you can see that a little bit more than you can in the moment uh, when it's released, because I'm sure in 95, this is very bold, very brash, especially to American filmmakers. Um, and I appreciate that about it quite a bit. Yeah. I, and I think Arthur, the, the moment that we haven't talked about, and I don't, I don't really have a whole lot of like concrete thoughts about it. I just want to talk about it very briefly. But the moment that I really love from this film, I think, um, just really illustrates what you're talking about is that that restraint at the very end of the film uh, when Hay and the uh, the hitman's assistant meet for the first time. Or, we know not the first time. It's been alluded to. They've met a couple of times. She helps him elude the cops earlier in the movie. Um, but uh, she has had Ming, her, the, her love and business partner, murdered. She set it up uh, a failed hit, so he'll die. And she's, uh, you know, chowing down on some noodles in this shop. And Hay, as often happens, finds himself in some ruckus because he doesn't know how to not be in the middle of it. And uh, he clears out this bar, and they look over at each other, and they're like, oh, hey, how's it going? And it's this very quiet moment, and it's this moment of the two of them kind of reconciling with their loneliness almost. Uh, it's And it just, again, turns into this, while stylistic and flourishy, very kind of long shot of them on this motorcycle, um, him smoking a cigarette and her VO of, you know, this this doesn't really mean anything, but it's nice to just be next to another person yeah, and not to feel that warm. Also, just... another great uh, music cue mm. right there at the end. Oh, that like, music cue at the end is great. Uh, it really it really hits the whole film home. Yeah, yeah, it, it's absolutely fantastic. Um, th- that was a moment for me though that I wanted to talk about. Uh, it's actually on the Criterion Collection box art because mm-hmm. it's such a good image. Uh, do. Does anybody have any thoughts on that ending of the film, that, that very final it's moment? It's that fisheye. You know, you see how sort of his face is elongated there. Yeah. And so it's, it is that uh, visual choice there. And so we are within their heads, and what we are experiencing with them, I think, is cued to us by the music. It's like, hey, this is sort of that uh, – this is that uh, – what's the word I'm looking for? Um, sublime moment. Yeah, it's the connection you've yeah. been looking for all along. Yeah. Sometimes it's just uh, ships in the night with somebody you kind of know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's a it's a beautiful moment. It's it's the hell of a way to end a film, that's for sure. Yeah. I think it's also I, I may be wrong, but it's like the first moment, like that final pan up, like when this like sort of like it's early morning, like the sun is rising into this blue sky with these skyscrapers, like really brings home that like sublime, I guess like beautiful moment. They're like, Oh, I'm here and I'm with someone and like Although we may not be together in the future, like this yeah. is nice, like right now. And in it this might be—it might be the only time that we see daylight in the film. I'm thinking it might actually be. Yeah, I think it is. Is that what you were about to lead yeah. to? Yeah, yeah. That's I think what I was saying. Sort of like I don't know, maybe like the dawning of the new day or something like that. I don't know. Kind of like the end of uh, Matrix Revolutions, an underrated film where you see the uh, the sun for the first time. See, I thought you were going to say stagecoach when they walk away in the sunrise. Nope. Yeah, nope. But... Always going to go to bat for the Matrix sequels. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. More John Ford for you there, there Arthur. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. So, okay. Well, there you go, dear listener. I think that's been a great conversation. Let's come to the point of the show where we render a verdict, shelf or trash, else or instead. Um... Keith, and I know you're going to say Shelf. Would you recommend any pairings with this film? Uh, I don't know anything right off the bat. Like, uh, 
I uh, didn't come prepared, I guess, in this regard. It's but perfectly I'd pro- okay. I'd probably say, you know, like, check out if you enjoyed this or if you did watch it. Check out – you definitely have to check out Chunking Express. Absolutely. The companion piece to this. And uh, I thought that uh, Wong Kar Wai's first film, while it's definitely you, you like shows that he's like a young filmmaker like it's still pretty interesting and good i've heard some people i think matt singer on letterbox said this is like uh like the a like uh, asian version of mean streets oh okay what's do you know the name of that film off the top of your uh, head? as tears go by as tears go by okay all righty well thank you very much for that mr smith uh mr dalton stewart what's say you show for trash else or instead I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and say shelf. Yeah, I, I think uh, it's for the collector only, for sure. I mean, not everybody needs to have this on your, on their shelf. But if you're you're curious about you know Hong Kong cinema, for sure, you need to check this out. If if you're like me and most of your exposure to Hong Kong cinema is through Hong Kong action cinema, yeah, you should probably go ahead and and, and give this one a whirl because I, I think there's a lot to be to be gained from it. Uh, I liked it a lot, and I'm very glad that we watched it. Uh, what should you pair with it? Uh, we didn't talk about poverty a whole lot on this episode, although we could have spent yes, most of the episode talking about it. Um, and I'm going to recommend a pairing uh, that I think does similar things, and that's uh, The Florida Project, which I think I mentioned recently on the show because I've just recently seen it. But I think both films do a really great job of showing an unglamorous and yet unfetishized uh, depiction of poverty. I think they do a really good job of showing uh, life on the fringes and how that there there can be an excitement, but there is also you know hurdles and dangers and you know sleeping in weird places and breaking into places and you know this. It, it, I think both films do a really good job of of threading that needle of you know being about poverty without really commenting on it at all and just depicting it as it is. So that that is my first selection. Uh, I would also recommend you check out Wonkar Wise a Grand Master just being the only other film of his that I've seen. I do love that movie a lot though. I think it's a very very cool film that also has a whole hell of a lot of style and also says a lot of stuff and uh, has a lot of interest. Uh, and finally one more uh, Hong Kong film for you. It is uh, a little bit in the action vein. It is Infernal Affairs, the very famous source material for The Departed, uh, a film that is uh, very heavily uh, about the handoff without ever really being about the handoff back to mainland China. Um, and also a film that's, uh, you know, we didn't really talk about this on uh, our episode, but uh, as Catholic as The Departed is, that movie is super Buddhist uh, mm-hmm. in really cool ways. And, um, Look, I, I like The Departed more, but I actually think Infernal Affairs is probably a little bit more interesting because I think there's a lot more subtext going on. So if you have uh, fallen in love with The Departed uh, because it's a very accessible and fun film, you need to go check out Infernal Affairs because it's very cool, too, and has some really great performances. Awesome. I like those picks a lot. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what say you? Shelf for Trash, Else, or Instead? I'll shelf it. I, I think it's a, it's a good entry into kind of more surreal or existential film if that's not something you're used to i think it's a pretty nice entry point to that um and then i think just as a a film in general i think it's fascinating i think it's beautiful and poignant and so i'm gonna shelf it and i've got a couple of different sets here of uh else's uh, to go with it the first is just uh we mentioned it earlier and i think if you're looking at kind of abstract experimental or not experimental but existential uh Hitman films, I think you watch uh, Lynn Ramsey's uh, You're Never Really uh, Here. I think it's just beautiful, a lot of meditative 
uh, moments much like this film, although it's a lot more kind of, I think, fluid. It's not, you know, it's not frenetic. It's not as high energy as this. It's a much more of a meditative piece. Um, but I would definitely pair that here. Uh, but I've also got an international trilogy uh, that I would pair. You're going to go around the globe uh, with this one. Uh, we're going to hit some different genres. Uh, but a lot of this film, the kind of cool hitman uh, aesthetic, walking around streets. I thought a lot about uh, Le Samurai mm -hmm. uh, from fan, uh, France. Uh, so I think you start with that. And then, uh, again, I thought of, and it's great that Keith didn't brought it uh, for me, but I also thought a lot of Caron's um, uh, Etumama Tambien uh, with that existential voiceover yeah. uh, playing. Uh, quite, quite reminiscent of that. And then uh, you mentioned Reservoir Dogs, but I thought quite a bit about Pulp Fiction. Yeah, for sure. Um, because of these kind of crossing narratives, but also just this very kind of existential uh, dialogue at play. And I, I, for some reason, I thought more of Pulp Fiction there. Um, so I think that would be my, my trilogy, my international trilogy. You would kind of trot the globe with these films and, and maybe end in Hong Kong. Hell yeah. All righty. Well, I am also going to Seychelf. I like this movie a lot. Um, no surprises. And, and I'm with I'm with Keith, and I think Chungking Express, if you like this, you like that. And I think the two of them together is an excellent sort of uh, solid pair. Uh, two other Chinese-language films uh, to look at. City on Fire. Uh, so we got some John Woo and um, Chow Yun-Fat. And so that's more of the action vein regarding uh, this film. And then more of the globalization vein. A, Bulletproof um, Monk? Uh, no, a Mandarin film uh, rather than a uh, Cantonese film. It's called The World. I've, I've recommended it before, and I always have to look at this guy's name because I always mispronounce it. But Ziai Zhangke is his name, um, and his moves, uh, Xiao Tao, is uh, starring in the film. But it's set in Beijing in an amusement park, and it is about globalization and a Chinese identity. And it does some anti-realist stuff that is really pretty fascinating. There's animated bits and pieces uh, in a otherwise uh, live-action film. And so the world is just a really, really great little piece of cinema. And I recommend it very, very highly. I really love when live-action films incorporate animated sequences yes. i think a lot of hal or even uh harry potter uh, and definitely hal is part one i just i love that mix and it's a really effective storytelling tool i absolutely agree so, so yeah take a look at it well, there well is this the culmination keithan's here was this the last one yeah i'm done right is no i it? think we're gonna do one more show oh, okay one more one, one more one more what do we got well actually we're gonna try to do a couple more so we can get to another shocktober but, i think uh, so that's that's really where this is all about we we do this whole year worth of content just so we can get back to shocktober yeah I, I, the I'm other i'm committing to one year. more what, right. what if we tell you that we'll we'll watch some italian movies when we get to shocktober okay i'm in all right, all right. cool well, we've got dust we we'll for two more him. months Yay. Um, well, it's, you know, it's really interesting, Dalton, that you keep bringing up uh, Infernal Affairs, mm -hmm. uh, because next week we're going to watch a, another film uh, directed by Andrew Lau, mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and it's going to be his English language debut, if I'm not mistaken. I believe you're right. I know what uh, film you're talking about. And we're going to be talking uh, Revenge of the Green Dragons. Produced by Martin Scorsese. Produced by Martin Scorsese. So there you go. Martin Scorsese produced The Snowman, so... They can't all be winners. Yeah, they can't yeah. all be winners. But hey, hopefully, you know, this one's good because uh, he, he liked uh, Infernal Affairs so much. He uh, adapted it and then said, hey, you want to make a movie in the U.S.? So uh, I'm excited about this. I remember when this came out. I know I got kind of mixed reviews, but yeah. uh, it's about uh, a San Francisco, a Chinese gang in San Francisco, right? New York. New York. They're okay. in New York. It's 1980s. Uh, Two best friends rise to the ranks. You'll hear that again next week, dear listeners. Of of, of course. Uh, it's a Scorsese movie. Of course it's set in New York. So nice. it, it yeah. just sounds like The Departed. Um, anyway. <laughs> well. Keith, were you going to say something? Oh. Oh, okay. No. No, okay. Saying, uh, 
I haven't seen it. I look forward to watching it. Well, if you want to watch it, Keithan, it is on Netflix. It's streaming. It's one of the multiple A24 films that they put up there about a month ago. So I'm very pumped to this. I because didn't, I didn't even know it was A24. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's yep. one of the That's earlier cool. films that they distributed. Yeah, pretty early um, on, right back in the Spring Breakers days when they are first yeah. coming out. So it is from 2014, I believe. So very excited to take a look at that. Uh, take a look at another film. Take a look at uh, Fallen Angels. Uh, you keep watching. We'll keep talking. And we'll see you all next time. Next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Good Trash Genre Cast, brought to you by the Good Trash Media Network, sponsored by Keithan Smith this week. Uh, thank you very much, Keithan. Our intro music is uh, composed by friend of the show, Aaron Rodgers, and our outro music is Only You by The Flying Pickets. Came back on me yesterday, moving further.